What does it mean? What does it look like if a person decides to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? You know, I've often thought, uh, as I've read through the Gospels over the years, or, or been in a Bible study or heard a sermon about Jesus and his interactions with disciples, I've often thought how cool it would have been to have lived when Jesus lived, you know, to, to live in the area he lived in, to, to follow him around, to, to see him do miracles, to see him in the flesh, to see him, to hear him teach and, and to speak, to see how he, he treated people, how cool it would have been just to, to follow him around and try to soak up everything you could from being with him. Today we're starting a new sermon series that will run through Lent up to Easter. We're entitling it Discipled by Jesus. And just an aside real quickly, uh, Pastor Luke has put together a, a study guide and life groups are, some of are being encouraged to use this. Uh, it'll, it'll tie in with the passage we'll preach on each week. Uh, but we're also encouraging individuals. If you're not part of a life group, you can't do that at this time. You can do it by yourself or you can do it with your, your family or, or your spouse. But we encourage those are at the back of the sanctuary as you leave this morning or you can get them from the office as well. So anyhow, we're starting this sermon series, Discipled by Jesus. And though we cannot have this exact same experience that the first disciples did, obviously, we can, in a very real sense, be discipled by Jesus Christ himself. We can learn from him as we follow him through the Gospels. We can learn from him as we see him in the Old Testament. We can learn from him as we see the letters written about him in the New Testament. And we can be taught by him directly through his Holy Spirit. So even though it's not exactly the same as the first disciples, we can be discipled by Christ in a very real fashion. So we'll be looking at selected passages in the New Testament, primary in the Gospels, and we're going to try to pull out what was Jesus' goal as he spent time with the disciples? What were the things he wanted them to understand about themselves, about who he was, about God the Father, about the Spirit? Uh, What were the things that he wanted them to, to value Uh, How did he want them to treat other people? Uh, What did he want them to understand that their purpose was to be in life? And the goal is at the end of the series, hopefully, as we're discipled by Jesus himself, we'll have grown as uh, his followers. So we start with Luke chapter 5, the passage that was just read. It's a great place to start because in this passage, Jesus gives a very strong invitation to a certain way of life to follow him. Uh, And he also, in this passage, highlights something that's of supreme importance to him, something that he really, really values, and he wants us to have the same value for it. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 5. Now, to set the context, just before this, in chapter 4, we see Jesus has just started his public ministry. And um, he went to his hometown synagogue, his home church, in a sense, and he preached. And rather than get a a hero's hometown welcome... Uh, instead, they riot. They chase him out of town and they try to throw him off of a, of a cliff. It would kind of uh, discourage you from wanting to preach again, wouldn't it? Um, he, we also see that he does uh, some, some miracles. He heals Simon Peter's mother from a fever. Um, he, he helps other people. At the end of a long day, the crowds are pressing around him because they, they want him to do things for him. They want to hear him. The same thing is happening as we begin in chapter 5. Let's pick it up. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And and just FYI, the lake of Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Galilee. That's probably more familiar to you. 
And Jesus is preaching at the edge of the lake. And, and we read that he's at the water's edge and there's two boats. Uh, these fishermen are washing their nets. They've, they've, they've fished all day long, they're done, all night long, they're done. And Jesus is being crowded by all these people. And he decides to get into the boat of Simon. Remember Simon, he healed his mother earlier. And he gets in the boat and they push away from shore and he preaches from the boat. Apparently so they could hear him better and he'd have a little bit more room. And then it says this. And after Jesus finishes his sermon, the fishing trip is going to begin. And it's kind of a continuation, a, a kind of a closing illustration, an application point of his sermon. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Let's stop for a second. Have you ever had somebody come to you at work um, and you're at your desk, at your job, your work site or whatever, and um, they try to tell you how to do your job? You know, and you're the one with the training and the experience, the expertise, you know what you're doing. And this person comes in and, and they try to tell you how to do your job. Um, it's kind of annoying, isn't it? Or maybe it's not even work-related. Say you're, you're trimming your lawn or you're baking cookies, you're trying to hit a golf ball or trying to paint a wall, and somebody comes along and says, uh, hey, no, 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 do it this way. Do it, do it this way. Listen to me. I know it hasn't worked the other way, but do it this way. It's, it's annoying. Well, that's kind of the situation here. Simon is a career fisherman. That's what he does for a living. That's what he knows. He grew up around the Sea of Galilee. He, he knows the lake like the back of his hand. He knows where to fish, when to fish, what kind of bait to use, what time of year they're going to bite best, and things like that. He, he knows. That's what he does. He's a fisherman. And, and, and here is Jesus, this, this carpenter, this guy who works with wood, who says, no, go back out and try it again. Well, verse 5, Peter's response, Master, we've worked hard all night long, and we haven't caught anything. Again, to be like, say, you're hunting and you've been out with your buddies and your dogs and your guns and you walk the fields you usually have luck with, nothing. And you come back after a long day, you're a little bit frustrated, no luck, you're cleaning your guns, uh, you're getting your dog in the truck and getting ready to head home and this city slicker shows up and says, um, it was never hunted a day in their life. And they kind of say with an annoying smile and enthusiasm, hey, guys, try it again. Walk the field again. Get the dogs out. Get the guns ready. I'm sure you're going to have luck this time. It'd be annoying. But listen to Peter's response. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I'm not sure this is going to work. It doesn't seem like it's going to work, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. He says, Master. He, he acknowledges Jesus' authority over him. Master, we've worked hard all night long, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. He had no idea, no earthly reason to hold out hope for a catch. But he has faith, and he lets down the nets. And he catches the catch of his life. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this about faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, none of us know. None of us know what God is doing 100% of the time. Exactly. We, we, we sometimes have questions, Right? None of us know 100% of the time exactly why he does 
what he does, even how he does it sometimes. And sometimes it feels like in life, God may ask us to fish in the wrong spot at the wrong time. God, this is not going to work. It doesn't make sense to us, but God waits for a response. He waits for a response from us that demonstrates our faith in him. That shows we will do what he says to do. He waits for us to say, like Peter did, but because you say so, I will. For example, Lord, it does not make sense to give sacrificially when finances are tight. But because you say so, I will. Or Lord, it does not make sense for me to take a stand at work. I'm going to get in trouble with my boss, but because you say so, I will. Lord, it does not make sense for me to pour my life into this person. They're nothing but trouble. I hassle. They drain me. I don't see any evidence they're going to change. But because you say so, I will. And so Peter drops his nets, and what happens? He's overwhelmed. The nets begin to break. There are two boats. They're both beginning to sink because of the weight of the fish in them. And Peter learns a lesson that we would do well to learn ourselves. That God uses the faithful to do great things. That God uses the faithful to bring others to him. You know, when I was um, 14 years old, my family and I, uh, we took our tent trailer and we headed straight north of here, uh, up into Canada, in Manitoba, the province just north of uh, North Dakota. And we chose to go there because uh, my uncle, my Uncle Merrill, um, lived in, for a few years in a town called Minidosa. It's surrounded by lakes, a beautiful area. There's a national park there. And he, he lived there for a couple of years because he was studying ducks, okay? He was getting his doctorate in ornithology, the study of birds, and he was focusing on ducks. Now, we'd never visited him when he was there, but we'd heard stories. And so we thought, let's check this place out. And so we drove north, and we, we camped, and we did some looking around, and we looked up some of his friends, and on Sunday morning, he went to the Covenant Church that he happened to attend when he was there with his wife, Beth. And, and after church, we met this guy named Ed Erickson. He was a friend of my uncle's. And, and everybody in town called him Uncle Ed. He was a local legend in town in the 80s at the time. And everybody knew that if you wanted to catch fish, that he was the guy you had to see. And so after Uncle, this, uh, Uncle Ed figured out that we were Merrill's relatives, the first words out of his mouth were, do you want to go fishing? And we're like, well, of course, we've heard about this guy. So, yes, we'd like to go fishing. And then he asked, do you want to catch a lot of fish or do you want to catch big fish? The other way around. Big fish or a lot of fish? And, and we said, we want to catch a lot of fish. I mean, we were, we were pretty young kids. And my dad's like, a lot of fish. We've got to keep them busy, keep them interested. And so we went fishing. And in about 40 minutes, we caught like 13 or 14 good-sized, you know, 24 to 30-inch long uh, pike. Best day of fishing in my life. It makes a difference when you're with a master fisherman. In the business of fishing, for men, women, and children, Jesus is, is the master fisherman. And he knows who's ready to be reached and how to reach them and, and when to cast. And the people that Jesus puts into our lives, it may not make sense sometimes. How can I share my faith with him? We have nothing in common. How can I tell her about Jesus? We, we keep butting heads. Why are you leading to me, share, to me to share with them? They don't want to hear from me. But the first prerequisite of being used powerfully of God to reach others for Christ is simply a willingness to cast our net 
when and where Jesus tells us, a willingness to step out in faith because he knows who's ready. And so when he tells us to fish, we're to fish. Now it's important to remember that that just because we're called to cast our net does not mean that there's a guaranteed catch. We're called to be faithful in casting, but the catch is up to God. I think that's why Jesus uses this metaphor of fishing. Uh, Because if you ever fished at all, you know that catching fish is never automatic. Uh, It can depend upon the weather, the temperature of the water, the bait, your experience, etc. The same is true with casting our nets out for Christ. We cannot orchestrate things and fish in such a way that we're guaranteed a catch. I think this is why God wants us to be reminded that it's his doing. I think it's why, in part, the gospel is called a mystery in the Bible. Because what happens in a person's life when they, when they come to faith in Christ and they're saved and they're a new creation, it's, it's a miracle, something that we cannot produce. We cannot manufacture. It's God's doing. God is responsible for the results. Jesus said this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws that person in. The word draw is the same word that's used here when it says they dragged, they drew the nets into the boat. It's God's doing. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes his own conversion. He says, God took unerring aim and fired. Another count, God closed in on me. Another one, he says, I was dragged through the doorway. I was drawn in. That should create confidence in us because we're not responsible for the results, but we are responsible for the casting, for the fishing, for the sharing. And that should humble us. Take a look now at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this huge catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. So next, God uses the humble to bring others to Jesus. Now, when you look in scriptures, whenever a person really encounters Jesus in a personal way, one of the first things that happens is they're humbled. Not in the sense that Jesus is like, I'm better than you. I'm more perfect than you. They're humbled. Because they see their need for him. They see the sin in their lives. That's what happens here. Peter falls to his knees because he knows he's unworthy. We see it again in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6. He falls to, he he has this vision of heaven. He says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am not worthy. And so when a person really encounters Christ, in a powerful way, humility is the result, which is a key to successfully sharing our faith. Humility. It begins with an understanding of our own need for a Savior and our own sinfulness. Now, humility, it's been said, is an elevator to spiritual greatness. What's that mean? Well, because when we admit our own inadequacy and sin, it leads us to a greater dependency upon God. And we operate out of a place of of weakness where God's strength is made perfect. And the people that God uses most powerfully are those who understand that they are sinners saved by grace, no better than anybody else. People who depend totally upon God. Again, we look at Peter. 
Peter, after his cry of humility, he's commissioned, he's sent out to tell others about Jesus. Isaiah in the Old Testament, after his cry of humility, he's commissioned, he's sent out to tell others about God's message. So God wants to use us to, to reach others. It's his work, his power, his success, his results, but he includes us. What a privilege. Finally, God uses those who are committed to reach others for him. So they pulled up their boats on shore and they left everything and they followed him. So you have these two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. This was their livelihood. This is what they knew. This is what their family, where their families and friends were. This was their security. This was their identity. They were fishermen. But they leave all that all behind. They leave behind the biggest catch they've ever had, which is, had, which is literally like leaving a bunch of, of cash laying in the boat. They leave it all behind. And they follow Jesus. And as we see, as we follow their, their lives through scriptures and through history, they're used powerfully to reach people for Christ. Now, I want to close with this. Now, God does not call everybody to literally leave everything like the first disciples did. You know, sometimes he might, and if that's the case for you, then go. But more often than not, as we look at scriptures and we look at our lives, Jesus instead tells us to, to stay. Stay where you're planted. Stay where you have relationships established. Stay where you're at and, and fish where you are. That's the case for many of us, most of us but we're still called to a wholehearted, total commitment to put God's work and God's agenda before our own, to faithfully cast our net whenever and wherever the Lord tells us to. Paul Harvey, the legendary broadcaster, once said, too many Christians are no longer fishers of men, but keepers of the aquarium. What are, what are we? What are, what are we about? What are you about? Because if there's one thing that's clear from the Gospels, it's that Jesus cares and passionately loves all people and wants them to be brought into the boat, to be brought into the kingdom, to be brought into his family. And so as we begin this journey, being discipled by Jesus, we see from this account in Luke 5, this clear invitation from Jesus to follow him, to be about his work, and to invite others as well into his kingdom because he loves all people and he wants us to, to, share, to share the same values and to cast our nets whenever and wherever he calls us to do so. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your love for us and we are grateful for your word. We thank you, Father, for the example of your son Jesus who um, came into the world and called people to follow him, to give their lives to him and to, and to find purpose and meaning and, and, and grace and hope, not just for this world, but also for the next. We thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus. Father, help us to be people who are faithfully listening to Jesus um, and to say, well, Lord, we not sure, we're not sure if this makes sense or if it's going to work, but because you say so, I will do it.